Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning. I also want to welcome you here to the chapel. And if we've not yet met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the Chapel Segan site pastor and excited to continue in our series in Genesis today. Now, I want to reiterate what Dave said about Fall Fest. This is one of the easiest opportunities as, our, as a church to open our doors to the community and invite people in and get to, get to know people, to serve them, to give a good opportunity to come and spend some time with people that love Jesus and to get an introduction to who we are. So especially at this location, this is one of the things that we do every year where we can say, hey, the community that lives right around us, we want you to come and have some fun. And I would love for this location to represent as we volunteer. And I would love to encourage each of you to pray this week about a family that you can invite to come and enjoy this with us. I also want to remind you that today, after our 1045 service, is our, uh, our family lunch that we're going to be doing. If you forgot about it, I'd love to still invite you. We ordered some extra food, knowing that might happen. So if you want to come back at 12, we're going to be meeting in the youth center and out in the courtyard. And we actually have weather that we can enjoy the courtyard finally. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'd encourage you to come back. It's going, to be, it's going to be great. We're going to have gumbo. And we actually got some weather that works for gumbo. So it all worked out. Let me pray for us as we get ready to dive into the word today. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. And we're all bringing things in that would cause us to be distracted or worried or anxious, wondering about the things that are coming next, whether the, the opportunities that are in front of us or the things that we fear. But I pray for these moments together, you would allow us grace to fix our eyes on you, that you would give us grace to hear from your word, because that's the only way that we're going to come and be changed. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. And if there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, I invite you to come and speak because we do want to hear your voice as we're in your presence and be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been with us, we have been in a series on the book of Genesis. We've spent the last month going through the creation stories in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what we've seen over and over again is this is where God has introduced himself. Which I hope that concept, if you've been with us, has, has been sinking in a little bit. The idea that God himself, the creator of the world, actually introduces himself to his creation. Everything that we've seen in these chapters is about God revealing the things that he wants us to know in the beginning. And there's a couple of themes that we've looked at. There's actually many themes and foundations that we've set, but I want to remind us of two that we've been looking at, not because they're more important than the others, but because they're going to be important as we jump into Genesis chapter 3. The first is this, God is a God of abundance. God is a God of abundance. We've been reminded over and over again that God has given us everything that we need. And he didn't just give us what we need, but he lavished blessing upon us. He gave us food, but he didn't just give us sustenance. He gave us variety. He gave us beauty. 
He gave us companionship. He gave us so much abundance that there is nothing that we need to enjoy that he did not provide. We see that over and over again, but we're going to see as we get into Genesis 3 and we see temptation be able to come to the human race, that that idea of God's abundance is going to be questioned. The second thing that we've seen over and over again is when God speaks, he forms the formless and he fills the empty. When God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, he creates everything that is out of nothing. When God speaks, meaning and purpose appear. When God's word comes forth, there's power. But what we're going to see is at the end of chapter 2, everything is now good. God is done speaking to form creation. And the question that's going to be before us is, now that God is done speaking, what begins to happen when others come in to speak? At the end of chapter 2, we see that everything is good and everything is perfect. And as we move into chapter 3, there's a bit of a turn in the story. And we're introduced to an intruder, somebody that comes in to cause confusion and to move away from what God had said. And right in chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, it's interesting here in the beginning, in chapter 3, is that the intruder and the intrusion are not explained for us. We're not told why this serpent is here. We're not told where he came from. It's kind of hanging out there as a mystery for us. The passage is also not concerned with telling us where evil has come from. We're introduced as a mystery to what is happening here. Now, the intruder is called a serpent. He's compared to the other animals, the other creation that's in the garden. And what we will begin to see, and we'll have to go outside of Genesis 3 to see some of this, but he is a symbol and what many have called the anti-God. He comes in and he is actually, the text tells us, he's, he's made. He's like the other creatures that God has made. So he's not some mythological creature that is representing temptation or sin or something like that. He is a creature that is made and put into the garden. Now in Genesis 3, we're not told much about who he is. But if we go to the last book of the Bible in Revelation, we get to hear his name. In Revelation chapter 12, we read this. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So here we get to see the name of the serpent, that he is the devil or Satan. And we see from this text and some others that he is a fallen angel, a demon. That there were angels that were created in heaven to serve God and some rebelled and were thrown down to the earth. Now, Genesis 3 is not concerned with who these angels are, with what the serpent is, but I want to take a little aside so that we can have some handlebars to understand 
who angels are and who Satan is because it's going to be important as we run into the temptation that he brings. And what we see is that angels are created beings, but they are not made in the image of God like humanity is. Angels have powers that humanity doesn't have. Angels don't have the limitations that humanity has, specifically death, but not being created in the image of God is something that we have that is different. Angels are a higher order of creation, but when God comes to redeem his image, humanity is going to actually be exalted above the angels. Now, there is so much that we could say about the devil. He is a liar. He's an accuser. He seeks to kill and to steal and destroy. And he has only one mission to overthrow the mission of God. Now, for those of you that like to go and and study some more, you can write these references down. But in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, we do get a chance to see more about where he came from and and how the angels were thrown down from heaven that uh, rebelled against God. But what we see is that Satan was one that was given more authority. And he said, I actually want to be in charge. And God throws him down, and many of the angels followed him, and they've been in rebellion ever since. But in Genesis 3, we don't get to hear any of that. We just see this serpent show up in the garden. Now, why is that important for us? Why is it important that we get to have some understanding of who this serpent is? Here's why it matters. Because our battle is a spiritual one. Our battle is a spiritual battle. And I think in our world today, that is becoming harder and harder to believe. We are not supposed to just come here on Sunday mornings to find out the right set of rules that we are supposed to live by that are over and against some alternative set of rules that everybody else is living by. That's not why we come here. Following Jesus is not behavioral modification. Following Jesus is not trying to figure out what rule book should we play by that is over and against the rule book that everybody else lives by. We don't come here to try to figure out who's in and who's out based on the type of behavior that we see. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey of being transformed into the fullness of the image of God being restored into who God has made us to be. But we are in a spiritual battle. And that journey towards being conformed into the image of God will always encounter spiritual oppression. And it's important for us to understand right at the beginning of the story that we have an enemy, that he is crafty, and that he does everything that he can to try to move us away from the life that God intends for us. So the question for us and for all of humanity and for Adam and Eve in the garden, the question for us is, is God really a God of abundance? Is God actually a good, loving God that has given us everything that we need? Or do we need to fend for ourselves? Do we need to go find the goodness that is out there? Or is God the one who has provided it? 
So how does this intruder attack the serpent that comes in? Well, he attacks the word of God directly. The first thing that we'll see on our handout is temptation questions God's word. That's what temptation always does. Now remember in uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we get to see the phrase, then God said 11 times. It was all about God speaking and things happening. But in the second part of chapter 3, verse 1, someone else speaks. And we see it say this. He said, talking about the serpent, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God had finished speaking. Creation was formed. And now is the serpent's turn to come and speak. And the very first thing that the enemy in the story that is going to be here throughout the entire narrative of the scriptures, the very first thing that he says is, did God really say? Did did he really say? Every temptation that the human race has ever encountered And every temptation that you have ever encountered or will ever encounter can be traced back to that question. Did God really say? Are you sure? Why does it matter? Temptation will always question the word of God. And it's going to be different for all of us. Did God really say that you should... Keep loving your wife because right now seems like it would be really difficult and painful for you to do that. Did God really say that you should flee from sexual immorality because, man, everything that we're seeing and feeling right now means that or shows us that that would be really satisfying for us? Did God really say that you shouldn't lie because everybody else is doing it? And if you would just say this one little white lie, you might get that promotion and that raise. Did God really say you should be slow to anger? Because that dude just cut you off in traffic. He deserves it. The phrase, did God really say, at the root is an invitation to sit in judgment over God's word. It's an invitation to the human race to call God into court and to accuse him. And they say, no, I don't think that's how this should work. And humanity has accepted that invitation ever since. And here's Eve's response in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, this is an interesting response from Eve because it's not actually what God said. If we go back to chapter 2 where we see this, this is what God actually said. And then the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, it sounds pretty similar, right? It sounds pretty similar to what she said. But Eve actually distorts the command of God in three different ways. Now, I'm going to show the comparison of each of these from what she said and from what God said on the screen. But the first is that she minimized the provision of the Lord. 
God had said, you may eat from any tree in the garden. And she says, well, we may eat from the trees. Now, that might seem semantical. That might seem like it's not that big of a deal. But in the original language, we have an extreme departure here from what God said. What God is referring to here is you can eat from any tree, all of the abundance that's here. I've given you everything that you need. You have so many options and variety. Everything is good. You can eat from all of it. Just don't eat from this one tree. And what Eve says is she kind of leaves out any there. And she's like, we can eat from some, tr- some trees. Like he, he's, given us some, he's given us some trees here. And I think what Eve is doing is she is minimizing the abundance that God has given. And it reveals one of the temptations that's in all of us all of the time. To believe that God is not a God of abundance, but he's actually a God of scarcity. That there's limited resources that we need to fight and claw for everything that we can because we can't trust God to provide everything that we need. The second thing that we see is she added to the prohibition. God didn't say you can't touch it. He just said you can't eat of it. But she says, no, God said we can't eat of it. We can't even touch it. And this is the root, the origin of what theologians will call legalism. The idea that we can add or should add rules to the things that God has said, because that makes it a little easier for us to actually obey. So many of us want to feel like we can measure ourselves against some standard, against some rule book, and then we actually feel better about ourselves because we did certain things that we thought we were supposed to do. And so what we do is instead of looking at the perfect standard that God has given us, his name is Jesus, we recognize, we're supposed to recognize that he's perfect. I could never measure up to him, so I need to run to God. I need to see my humility. I need to see the things that I don't have and run to God for it. But when we begin to lean into legalism, then we begin to create some rules that we feel like we can actually follow. And then we see other people not doing that, and we begin to feel better about ourselves, and it creates self-righteousness within us, and it makes us feel like we're better than we actually are on our own. This is also where all false religion comes from. The idea that we can just add to and put words in God's mouth in order to define what it actually looks like to follow him. That's what Eve is doing here. She's adding to the commands. The third thing that she does is she weakens the penalty of sin. God has said, don't eat of it, and if you do, you will surely die. She leaves off the surely and says, if we eat of it, we will die. Now, again, it might seem semantics, but the weight in the original language of this is that she's downplaying what the consequences would be. I mean, maybe it's not that big of a deal. I don't really know if God meant it exactly that way. And we tend to do the same thing. Just think about our sin. I mean, compared to that guy, I'm pretty good. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. I mean, everybody does it. At least I don't do these things over here. 
We tend to do the same thing. And these are the things that temptation does to us. When we begin to question God's word or adapt it or subtract from it or add to it, then we begin to question the very integrity of God. And the only thing that we have left is our feelings and our opinions about what we should and shouldn't do. So what about you? When it comes to God's word, what are you tempted to do to change it? Are you naturally tempted to add to it? To add rules to make you feel like you can obey God? To say, well, if I just read my Bible for this many minutes every day, then God will love me more. Or if I just go to church this many times every month, I'll be good. Or if I just do these good things or don't do these bad things, then I'm going to feel pretty good about myself. It's so easy for all of us to do this and just to say, I think that God will look more favorably on me if I have this type of life. And very often it's the type of life that we can actually accomplish on our own strength. The only problem is God never said it. And if that's where you tend to lean, we need to recognize that legalism at its roots really is all about us and our appearance and our pride. Feeling that we actually have more to offer than we really do instead of running to the grace of God. But maybe your temptation is to subtract from the word of God to lessen its consequences, to move the needle on what is actually sin so that it actually seems like we're doing better. That definitely also makes us feel better, but it leads to partial obedience, which is no obedience at all. God has spoken. And the question is, will we receive and trust in his abundance or do we need to step in and add to it? All temptation pricks our tendency to want to change God's word, but it's not all it does. Our second point is temptation denies God's word. Listen to Satan's response. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. You won't certainly die. That's a little intense. You think God really meant that? And this lie resounds so strongly in our world today. The lie that there really is no consequences for obedience, unless you're caught. I mean, if you're caught, that's a problem. But outside of that, there's not really that much accountability. And it's not just a denial about what God said. It's also a denial of the very character of God, the very integrity of God. When we begin to deny or doubt or question and completely get rid of what God has said, then we're denying who he is. And it leads to our third point. Temptation accuses God's goodness. Now, I'm aware that's not proper grammar. It just fits better in the flow of the outline. But I think you know what I mean. That temptation comes in and we begin to hurl accusations at God and to say things like, if God really was good, fill in the blank. 
This is what an accusation against God's goodness looks like. If God really was good, anything that we say after that sentence begins to be an accusation against who God is. And we see the tempter continuing to erode our trust in God. And really what he's doing is he's saying the prohibition is not given from a place of love from God, but really that he's holding out on you, that he doesn't have your best interest in mind. The serpent wasn't just bringing God's word into question, but God himself into question. Listen to what he says in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the temptation. God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. He doesn't really have your best interests in mind. The only reason he told you not to eat from the tree is because he knows that's where true awesomeness is found. You're going to be like him. He doesn't want that. And if that's your best and he doesn't want that for you, then clearly God doesn't want your best. Have you ever thought that God was holding out on you? Have you ever felt like in order for God to be good, he would need to do X. Or maybe thought that if I actually do the thing God's asking me to do, then I will have lack. Or maybe you've thought that since God doesn't want me to do this thing, that he is actually causing me to lose out and miss out on the blessings that he has. Is God really a God of abundance? Or do we need to fend for ourselves? That's what these temptations get to the roots of. The assumption is that the thing that God said would, would, is not okay would feel good. And since God says I can't do it and therefore can't feel good, then he doesn't have my best in mind. Is God a God of abundance or not? It's a question that is slowly getting eroded by the tempter. But the serpent takes it one step further. He's not just saying that God's holding out on us. He's letting them know that there's actually a different place to go to find the thing that you're really looking for. It's not from God. You need to go find it on your own. Our next point is temptation lies about what it promises. Temptation lies about what, is, what it promises. The serpent says their eyes will be open and they'll be like God. They'll grow in awareness. Their minds will be open. They'll expand and they'll get to perceive what only God can perceive. And that will be a good thing for them, but it's a half-truth. And we'll see the consequences in a minute. Now, they already know what is good and what is evil. God has already told them through his commands what is good and what is evil. Through study over these last few weeks and looking at this, it was kind of a mind shift for me. I always thought that in eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they learned what is good and evil. But God had already told them what was good and evil. They already knew what they should and shouldn't do. So what eating 
the fruit, what giving into the temptation actually did was it put them in a position to define what counts as good and what counts as evil. God had already defined what is good and evil, but now they're putting themselves in the position to define it for themselves. Now, Christopher Watkin, not to be confused with Christopher Walken, I've quoted him a couple times over the last few weeks and realizing that articulation is, it matters. So Christopher Watkins says this, to know good and evil is to usurp God's authority and decide on the basis of her own judgment what is to be counted as good and what is to be counted as evil. When everyone does what is right in our own eyes, chaos ensues. And this is why the devil is so crafty. Because it almost looks like for a moment that he has Eve's best intention in mind. Oh, poor Eve. You don't know what you're missing. This is such a good tree. You're eating from all these terrible trees over here. You're missing out on what's best. I feel so bad for you. God doesn't know what's good for you. I do. This is what you should do. This is what has often been called the noble lie. The noble lie is given from a person in power to keep those under them in subjugation, to make people think that what they are doing is actually for their good, but really it is just allowing the one in charge to continue his game, and we're just pawns. Christopher Watkin again says this, it is ennobling and empowering. It is an inspiring story that casts a grand vision of human achievement and it sets the, the bar high of human striving, as high as God himself. It's the sort of story that you might long to be true, even if it were not, but it isn't. And Eve falls for it. And we've all experienced that lie. It usually comes as a whisper. So, hey, come here. Why do you think God's the one who knows what's best for you? Do you know who knows what's best for you? You do. If this is going to feel good, go after it. If this is what you really want to do, why would you let anybody else say anything about it? Don't worry what God said. That was a long time ago. Don't worry about what anybody else says. Go pursue what is satisfying for you. And we wish it were true. But the noble lie of the serpent seems to say, do what makes you happy. But what we forget is that our imperfect fallen state doesn't actually give us what we need to define what is good and what is evil in the first place. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. Who decides what counts as an improvement or as progress in humanity? It could be none other than us, human beings in our current state. But these are the very humans that need improving. So on what basis should we trust our own judgment about what aspects of humanity should be improved? 
What he's saying is, well, if we have lack, if, if we need to go find more because we're broken, then we're just going to use our broken judgment in order to go figure out what is good. And it's a cycle that just does not work. But the lie is so tempting. The lie is that there's always more of what you really want in sin. But in reality, there's always less. And it will always be costly. It's been said before that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Here's our Eve response. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. Satan's done speaking at this point. The lie has been planted. And I think he just steps back, crosses his arms, and and laughs at what ensues. But Eve gives into the temptation She saw with her eyes that the tree was good. She saw that it would be good as food. And she saw that it would be desirable for making her wise. And this pattern is so similar to how the Apostle John talks about temptation in 1 John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes saw that the tree was beautiful. And the pride of life saw that it was good for discerning wisdom comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so she gives in. She gives in because she has come to believe the lie that God was holding out on her. And the lie that said she had to go after her best. And so she ate. And her eyes were open. But she had been lied to. These are the temptations that are before all of us every day. To believe the voice in our head rather than the verse on the page. That God has already spoken and already defined reality. And we believe the lie that we could do it better. So what do we do? Well, the letter of James uh, in chapter 1 tells us a little bit more about temptation. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's the desires that are inside of me, the desires that are inside of you that are pricked and triggered. And Satan knows for every single one of us, what are those things that are so easily enticed, those desires within us? He knows where to go and he knows how to prick. And when we believe the lie, we give in, we stumble and we fall. So what do we do? How do we fight? Well, James gives us a little bit more in chapter four. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
There's another place, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, I forgot to write it down, that says, therefore flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sin. Here, James says, resist the devil. Paul had said, flee from sin. The problem is, many of us tend to flip it. We try to flee from the devil, but we just stand and try to resist sin. We think that if we can just stand our ground and look sin in the face, that we're going to be able to fight. But the reality is, you can't fight sin on your own. The reality is, sin is actually stronger than you. Sin is stronger than me. Now, Jesus is way stronger than sin. And he's given his spirit into us so that we can fight. But so many of us just want to stamp our feet, grit our teeth and say, I can do this. I can just walk into the face of sin and not give in. And maybe that can happen once or twice. But your willpower is not enough to fight sin. We need to run to Jesus and run from sin. He says we can resist the devil. We can hurl God's word and God's truth at his lies. We can stand firm and resist him and he'll flee from us. But we need to run from sin. We need to flee. We submit to God and from that position we resist the devil. And then from that position, we flee from sin and temptations that come at us. There's so much more that we could talk about there. We're going to dive deeper in that, into that, into our community groups this week. If you're not in a community group, come and talk to us because that's where we flesh out some of that stuff. But I need to take an aside real quick. I need to, I need to call a sidebar. What happened to Adam? I mean, we've been talking about Eve this whole time. What happened to Adam? Well, he does make an appearance at the end of verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The dude was there the whole time. He was with her the whole time. He did nothing. He said nothing. He didn't fulfill his purpose of leadership and protection. I have this picture of him playing a Game Boy or something off to the side and realizing something happened. He's like, what? He's with her the whole time. Eve wasn't even there when God gave the command. God gave the command to Adam before he created Eve. So the only way Eve would have known the command is for Adam to pass it on to her. Now, I'm not saying he miscommunicated. It wouldn't have been the last time man miscommunicated something that was given. But for whatever reason, he did nothing. He didn't correct the serpent. He didn't help Eve. He didn't refuse the fruit. He was passive, complicit. And as we'll see next week, he throws his wife under the bus and passes the blame. He should have stepped up. He should have stepped in. He should have stepped on the snake. There is so much that he should have done. And as we'll see in the New Testament, Adam is the one who's held responsible. 
Adam was the one that was given the command. Adam was the one that was to be given the leadership. And he failed miserably. And as we'll see, this passivity and lack of leadership actually becomes part of the curse that mankind is given as a result of sin coming into the world. So a quick word to men in the room. Men, you were created to lead. You were given leadership to lead yourselves, your family within the church. To stand in the leadership and protection that God has given us. But so many, and this is not just today. This is a generations and generations and generations of people have been okay to abdicate leadership and allow the blame and the responsibility to fall on someone else, often our wives. And they are more than capable of doing it, but it is not what has been asked of them. We need to lead. We need to reject the passivity that comes at us from our culture. And ultimately, Adam is not our model. Jesus is our model. And the New Testament, one of the names given to Jesus is the second Adam. The one that actually fulfilled what God had given him to do. And the way he led was not heavy-handed. It was not domineering. It was not making others subordinate to him. It was through servant leadership. And ultimately, the way Jesus did that is he died on the cross for the sins of his bride, the church. And that is how we are to lead. More on that next week before I get off a little bit more. We're going to look at the consequences and curses that result from this sin next week, but we first see a glimpse of it in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice how they try to recover. They now realize that they're naked. I'm not really sure how that happens. Maybe... That's, anyway. And look at how they recover. They try to hide. They realize they're naked. They realize they're full of shame. And their response is to hide. They try to find anything that they can to cover up whatever they can. Because running and hiding is the only thing that they can come up with. In this new state that they're in, the only thing that they can think of is to run and hide. They know God's out there somewhere, and they don't want to have to interact with him. So how about you? What do you do when you fall into temptation? Because we all fall. And we all face temptation every single day. And we will all fall in sin every single day. What do you do when you fall into temptation? Do you hide it and hope no one finds out? Do you do more religious things thinking that you need to make up some kind of penance for it? Do you do lots of good things to, to make you feel better? Do you downplay it and pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal? Do you pretend like it didn't happen? 
Do you run to more and more sin and vice to try to numb yourself so that maybe just for a moment you can feel good because the guilt and the shame is so in your face? Now we're going to see God's response next week. But we can't leave here today without a glimmer of hope. I said earlier that you are not powerful to fight your sin on your own. It's also true that you're not powerful enough to recover from your sin on your own. We need to run to God. And in the next verses, we're going to see an incredible act of grace and an incredible act of mercy. We're going to dive into these more next week, but this is the gospel. This is what Jesus does. Adam and Eve are found out by God. They're wearing their fig leaves, probably not doing a lot of good. God looks at them and says, I see what you're doing. Let me help you. And he kills an animal and makes skins to better cover them. The first death in creation. God steps in in an act of grace and says, I know what you did. I'll bring that punishment here too, but... Let me help you. You can't hide. You can't cover yourself. Let me help you. And it foreshadows that there will be one that will come to die the ultimate death in order to be the ultimate covering. The obliteration, rather, of our sin. We also see an incredible act of mercy as God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. Well, that sounds like punishment, Steve. Why, why would that be mercy? Well, now that they are full of shame, the tree of life is still there. If they were to go and eat from the tree of life in their current state, they would be locked in their shame forever. So in an act of mercy, God kicks them out of the garden so that that wouldn't be able to happen. And he starts a plan in motion to bring redemption to this world, to restore that that which sin has broken and has continued to break ever since. That the first Adam was passive and did not accomplish what God had for him. The second Adam, Jesus, comes to fulfill and to restore and to give hope. We're going to see the consequences next week, and we're still feeling them. But he doesn't leave us without hope that there will be one that will come. We have the benefit of looking back to see that he has come to pay the penalty that we deserve. And he's coming again to finally restore all that God intended. So as we fall in our sin, we run to him. Don't hide. Don't cover up on your own. Don't go inward. Run to him. Do it in community so that we can fight sin together and not just pretend like we have it all together. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We thank you that you did not leave us on our own, but you came after us that you died the death that we deserve, that you came forward when we spit in your face 
And you've invited us in. And God, I ask in the name of Jesus that for all of us in this room, you would let our eyes be fixed on Jesus, that we would run to you rather than ourselves to fight sin, to recover from sin, that we would recognize that all we need is all that you have provided because you're a God of abundance. And though sin is in the world and things are broken, we thank you, Jesus that you have made yourself the firm foundation that we can stand on and nothing will move us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.